and welcome to Literacy Landscapes. I'm your host, Johanna. On Literacy Landscapes, we re-examine literacy theory and watch it in action today. We'll give you an inside look into the classroom and take you outside to where play and practice meet. I am delighted to introduce you to our guest today. Maestro Steven Gunzenhauser is an accomplished musician, conductor, and writer. In this episode, we talk about the role of language in music and beyond, and Maestro shares intriguing stories, loads of musical knowledge, and was seriously an absolute pleasure to speak with. Have you ever thought about how language might impact music? Stay tuned for a masterclass and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Literacy Landscapes podcast. It is my absolute honor and pleasure to introduce to you our guest for today. Maestro Steven Gunzenhauser is an accomplished musician, extraordinary conductor, and an author and I am just, and a fellow alum of music and art. So we have a lot in common. I am delighted to have you on and I'm just so grateful. Thank you for your time. It is my pleasure. I'm honored to be included in your podcast. Oh, I'm just, I'm so excited. I have so many questions and, you know, I always have the standard question that I ask my, all of my guests is about a memorable or meaningful childhood story or song or poem that you take with you today that still resonates? Do you have anything that stands out to you? Sure, of course. When I was eight or 10 years old, I walked past the barber shop every day to get to the subway to meet my dad who was coming home from work. In the barber shop, the barber was named John. Every time I would go into the barber shop, I would do my latest tap dance for him. And he would then give me a nickel, which was five cents. This went on for eight weeks, maybe 10 weeks. Then in the 11th week, I came and I did my step and he gave me a nickel. I said, today it's 10 cents. He said, what? I said, yes, it's 10 cents. He says, why? I said, inflation. He said, okay. He gave me the 10 cents and he says, don't come back next week because inflation hits all of us. Oh my gosh. Well, on that note. On that note, I learned about accountability (laughs) and the ramifications thereof. And it seems like from a very tender age, you were linguistically adept. Um... (laughs) Well, you know, with languages, I wanted to play stoop ball in my Uh neighborhood. And my parents, whose native languages were German and Spanish, refused to speak anything but English at home for themselves as well as for us. And so they insisted that we had to go in two summers to Switzerland for languages. And I was really annoyed because I wanted to stay home. And my wife insists that uh, she had a privileged childhood because she stayed at home and got hosed down in the driveway. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, but but we love, my sister and I loved being in Switzerland. Uh, people, I don't know if you know, John Rubinstein, who was an actor and producer. I played tennis with him. His father was the famous pianist, Arthur Rubinstein. Yes. And so, and we had many friends that I have maintained since then. The son of the Let me see. The son of the secretary to the king of Greece, Constantine. His name was Paniotis Kanelakis. 
And so we stayed friends with him. We stayed friends with the Portuguese count, Felipe de Alameda Trogoso. So it, you know, and people say, oh, what a snob, what a snob, what an elitist. Not at all. We were just there because we mm -hmm. were supposedly learning German and French. You know, we, I, I, I have so many questions about that. Last time, Joanna, I had an interview with the newspaper that was supposed to be 20 minutes. It wound up being 90 minutes. Uh. So I'm a man of many words. Don't worry. I love it. I also grew up in a multilingual household. French was my first language. I was born in Paris, but came as a baby. And, you know, I think I can think of many times where, Sometimes I'd get my French and my English mixed together. And, you know, I also think so there were, there was that side of it. And also then going to religious Jewish school and learning Hebrew at the same time. So I had lots of languages in my head. But I will say that having multiple languages has benefited me so greatly in so many ways. And one of the most meaningful things is that I can connect with so many people. And, you know, and I think that that's really special, just being able to communicate with total strangers. And, you know, I think just having multiple languages is just really so important, especially these days where, you know, I think technology sometimes I don't know. I think there's something to speaking with people in their language and, and to connecting. How is language and the languages you speak, how has that shaped you? Well, it isn't just that it has shaped me. I don't think that you realize or anyone realizes how it affects music. I'll give you an, a very generalized example. When the Berlin Philharmonic plays German music, it's absolutely gorgeous. When an American orchestra plays German music, it's okay. And why? Well, some of it goes back to when you're in your first years learning a musical instrument, you learn one and two and three and four and. Yep. In German, it's eins und, zwei und, drei und, vier und. The und, which is and, is a breaking mechanism. So it's Oh. The German orchestras tend to hold back. Also means American orchestras play with a great deal of swing because one and two and three and four and the and is an accelerant. So German oh. orchestras do not play swing or popular contemporary music well, whereas American orchestras do not play with the same kind of breaking mechanism, intense breaking me mechanism that the German orchestras can really achieve. It and it's the same thing with French. French is un et deux et trois, et right? Et, and, and that's kind of a, an uh, accelerant. And that uh, makes it, that makes the kind of sound that you will hear from a French orchestra similar to the kind of sound you will hear from an American orchestra. And a French orchestra, for example, can do marvelous jobs with uh, Darius Millot, Le Beuf sur le Toit. Mm -hmm. and also many pseudo swing pieces, French orchestras do very well. And there was a, a guitarist, Django Reinhardt. Oh, Django Reinhardt, yes. Not to belabor the point. My father was those, a huge fan. <laughs> yeah, there were those differences between different cultures, the way you think, is the way you produce music. I never, you really just blew my mind because I never, 
my dissertation was a linguistic analysis of mathematics curriculum, but looking back, I feel like I should have done a linguistic analysis of, of music. <laughs> certainly, it certainly should be explored because it yeah. is definitely, definitely a possibility. Wow. That's, in, that's incredible. When I, when I, I'll never forget. So, you know, growing up, you know, being a kid who just studied an instrument in public school. So shout out to PS81 for, I would say, changing the trajectory of my life by introducing me to the flute, right? Just a mm -hmm. regular Bronx girl. You know, you see a conductor on stage and you just think, oh, they're just waving a baton and they're just looking really sharp. And then I get to high school and I learn music theory and sight singing and for dictation. And then I learned what conducting actually involves. And then I learned that a conductor needs to know everyone's part. <laughs> and I wonder, it is such a challenge and you have to truly, deeply understand each piece you are conducting in such a nuanced way. What drew you to conducting? How did you get there? Well, Going all the way back when I was four or five years old, the granddaughter of Richard Wagner, was a, a famous composer, was a, a friend of my mother's. And she would come to our house. My mother played piano. And she said to my mother when I was four or five years old, Stephen hat eine musikalische Hinterkopf. That is, Stephen has the musical back of the head. He's going to be a conductor. To wow. my mother... My mother says, that's ridiculous. Stephen's going into his dad's business. And she laughed it off. And later, as I was becoming a conductor, Freelind, who became the head of the Bayreuth Festival in Germany, invited me to the master classes so that I would have the option and the opportunity to really have hands-on approach with the Wagnerian Orchestra and with the conductors that were there at the time and get to see them and get to meet them. And being a conductor is not living in an ivory tower in contrast to what everybody says. No, it's not. It is hard work. And I will tell you, my hat goes off thinking back to my high school <laughs> teachers, whether it was band or orchestra, getting us all together. I mean, I'll never forget one of my teachers, like we thought he was gonna, like he was clutching his heart at the end of one of our pieces. I don't remember what we were playing, whether it was Ives or something, but I mean, it's a labor of love. <laughs> it, it truly is, is. And it is a remarkable school, music and art high school. Yeah. Absolutely remarkable. And God bless Fiorello LaGuardia yeah. for bringing it into life alongside Stuyvesant and Brooklyn Tech and Performing Arts, what he did was was absolutely remarkable. And the school was wonderful. And I mean, in 19, when I graduated, I think we almost had 100% attendance in college from that. Whoa. School, which is unusual for that period, particularly. Yeah. Because the wow. local high school that I went to only had, a, at that time, a 70% or 60% that went to college. Yeah. And on a number of levels, it was special because we were united regardless of what borough we came from, our 
you know, individual or our cultural differences or you name it. And we were so incredibly beautifully diverse and came together, you know, and, and did our art together, right? So we sat at the table as musicians. We sat at the table as artists, whatever our majors were. And I'm still in touch with some of my teachers. In fact, one of my podcast episodes was with Dr. Paula Washington, who is also a music and art alum. She oh. was my she was my music theory teacher. I was a horrible music theory student. I never accomplished. I was terrible at four park di dictation. I think she still remembers it. But her <laughs> her dissertation was on the neuroscience of what happens when musicians play together in chamber music. And literally, your wavelengths, your brain wavelengths kind of meet up together. She realized that you literally, when you play an instrument with someone, you're literally matching their wavelength. You're connecting on a whole other level. So I'd love to hear about your, you know, you're such an accomplished museum, musician and conductor. And I'd love to hear about how that served as the backdrop and inspiration for your newly released book, Travels with Stephen, the most famous unknown conductor. <laughs> but, yeah, it was a twist in terms of the, the name for the book because of the fact that I have been very fortunate and had a wonderfully successful career but it's not the kind of a career of a Leonard Bernstein or of a Simon Rattle, who are, those people are completely preoccupied with public relations. They're preoccupied with attendance. They're preoccupied with jumping from one city to another city to make things work. I had the option to sit down in a community and to work within the two major communities that I lived in, Delaware, where I lived in Wilmington and Lancaster. And I served Delaware Symphony for 22 years, and I served Lancaster Symphony for 44 years. But in the meantime, because I lived in those communities, I performed in the same way as a Eugene Ormandy or a Leopold Stokowski, in that I became a part of the community. There's a conductor in Oklahoma City who's just retired, Joe Levine who was marvelous because he lived in the community and he helped the community to understand that classical music is not really classical music, music. Because classical <laughs> gives a whole new meaning. It's kind of like untouchable. Yeah, I, I, I meet people all the time. Oh, well, I wouldn't go to the symphony because I don't want to get dressed up. You don't have to get dressed up. When I appeared in, in Bogota, Colombia, half the audience were dressed up. The other half were wearing jeans or or moos or or casual outfits. It's not a matter of of the societal pressure of being fancy. And unfortunately, when you call it classical music, it's like saying, oh, I'm going to go to a classical play. Well, not necessarily. Shakespeare may be classical, but he still may be intriguing and in interesting and inspiring in many ways with what he wrote. And so what we need to do is allow the medium in which we work to be able to communicate with the audiences and to build new audiences. Joanna, when I was at Long Island University as an assistant professor, I had a chamber orchestra. 
in Bedford-Stuyvesant and Fort Greene, two of the largest ghettos in the world. Well, I had a concert and no one showed up, okay? Because it was a free concert. So I then printed up tickets and dropped them on the New York subways. And they were $10 tickets, but they were free. So it was a most unusual audience that showed up for those, but they then started coming. I had a, a poetry competition about life in Brooklyn. And the winning poem would be set to music by the president of the Society of African-American Composers. What we did is we built ties to the community so that the music that we were doing was really an outreach for expression from the community, not from Bach or Beethoven or Brahms, although we might have done some of that, but that was the key. Really, I love that you did that. You, you know, the idea that you're really connecting within the community, that you are making those connections, that you're bringing people to the music. And, you know, that's really important. I remember as a little girl in the Bronx that the New York Philharmonic, and they still do, would come to Van Cortlandt Park, right? And it was a, it was a, uh, it was actually a tradition, right? My family would make a little picnic and we'd set up, you know, on the lawn. And, and it was something as a little girl that, you know, was special and open to everyone. And I think that that music should be accessible and not, you know, and again, I keep going back to my PS81 experience, right? That, that, you know, having that public school experience opened a door for me that I never knew existed. And so I see, I keep saying all the time, like we should not cut music. We should not cut the arts in elementary schools or in public schools in general, that they are so vital. And I uh, love that, love that you did that within your community. I think, I think it's very important that people use music as a form of communication, not simply to sit back and go to sleep, but to be stimulated, to be entertained, to be educated, to be inspired. It's a three-pronged offer for people when they come to concerts. Unfortunately, there are any number of concerts that are being offered, whether from chamber music or from full orchestra, that tend to be boring as hell. And I'm the first one to say that. I mean, I had to do with the Northwest German Philharmonic 16 performances in the month of March, a number of years ago, of the Smetana tone poems, of which Mavlast, the Moldau, is the second poem. But it is the only one that is famous because all of the other poems are really terrible. But the Northwest German Philharmonic said, I've got to do them. Well, I accepted the challenge, but it was not an easy challenge because some of the music is really not very interesting. And that's my, what my music festival is all about in Corning, New York and Mansfield, Pennsylvania. We try to do works that are not well known, but are, are interesting for people that have never been to a concert or for people that are coming to concerts. The coming season, for example, I'm doing Brahms second. Well, that's part of the nifty 50. But mm -hmm. on the same program, I'm doing La Conica of George Santakis. Wow. And I'm doing the 100th birthday 
of Rhapsody in Blue. And the night before in Mansfield, I'm doing Rhapsody in Red, White and Blue as a Pennsylvania premiere by Peter Boyer. Oh. And I'm also doing the Madras Symphony of composer Henry Cowell. And nobody's ever heard of Henry Cowell. No, no, no. I haven't. Okay. He lived in the early 1900s. He's an American composer, traveled to India, was inspired, and wrote his 13th symphony. All right, I'm writing it down for myself right now so I can look him up. Absolutely. And then I'm also, in another program, I'm doing a piece called Melancholia, which is for bassoon and marimba by a Navajo Indian, Connor Chi. I love that you, I now I need to do some listening. Thank <laughs> you for sharing that. I've, I'm, t- I'm taking notes as we speak. Thank, I feel like I'm getting a music lesson. I think I need a little, I need to brush up a little bit. Um, oh, no, I, you're doing fine and your questions <laughs> are great. I appreciate that. I, you know, I tried to do my homework, but I have to tell you, I, I listened, you have Borjak 9 on your website and I was listening to it in, in the morning with my morning coffee. And I found myself putting the coffee cup down, which I never do in the morning because coffee is like tethered to me. And like, I had to pause for a minute. I was like in awe, in such awe that it was like, it was breathtaking to me how beautiful it was you just you, you nailed it and it made me wonder because it's not it is a it is a very ornate and challenging piece. I'm looking at your face very challenging piece yes. and it made me wonder just about how you approach you know conduct preparing to conduct a piece like that or and what might have been what might be the most challenging piece you've had to prepare for There are a number of pieces that I could talk about as the most challenging piece, but to get back briefly to Dvorak, when I was in in graduate school in Boston at New England Conservatory, uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, one of my responsibilities at WGBH-FM was to monitor Radio Moscow. Well, even though it was called the Red Menace, Russia at the time, It was 24 hours of the slow movement of the Dvorak Ninth Symphony. So that's the beginnings of my immersion in uh, Dvorak. Then my wife worked at Beth Israel Hospital in New York. She was a, a registered nurse there in cardiac intensive care. And I would walk past Dvorak's brownstone every time I came to see her. So I had a connection to Dvorak. Following, I was then tasked with doing the Dvorak Ninth Symphony with the radio orchestra of Slovakia. And I started the recording session. Well, the Slovak Philharmonic was very upset because I was their principal recording conductor. And they said, you know, Stephen should do all of the contemporary or unusual things with the radio orchestra, but Dvorak's our composer. So they then had me cancel. I was already into the first movement. They had me cancel my appearance with the radio orchestra and then start to record the complete works of Dvorak with the Slovak Philharmonic. Wow. Yeah. So there's a whole political side to things too. (laughs) Politics politics enters music all the time. Yes. 
A perfect, perfect example. I was tasked with recording the 1812 Overture. Well, hey, listen, everyone does the 1812 Overture, right? Well, the Philharmonic never heard of it. Why? Why? Because in this 1812 Overture is the Tsar's Hymn and the Marseillaise. And oh. as a result, the uh, orchestra producer, uh, the recording producer, had to go to Vienna to get the score and the parts. Wow. Yeah. So politics, politics enters music, particularly in Eastern Europe, all the time. Wow. That so. you've really... <laughs> I feel like I need to take a music history course with you. <laughs> I, another, another wonderful example is I there's a composer in Slovakia. I don't think he's alive any longer, but he passed away. But his name was Ilya Selenka. And he wrote an overture. And at a younger point in my career, because of my teachers, everything I did was from memory. So I memorized his overture, and then I performed it with the radio orchestra. He said to me at the intermission, that was just wonderful, it was brilliant. I want you to come to my house after the concert. I said, great. So he invites me to his house, at which point he introduces me to his wife. And she starts sidling up to me. (gasps) And she says, Ilya, play a waltz. We're going to dance. I said, I really really don't want to dance. This is very bizarre. I said, is anybody else coming to your apartment? No, it's just you. He then pulls out. he He was apparently a close friend of Beria who is the head of secret police in Russia. And he then pulls out a silver-plated gun that Beria had given him. And he says, you're fooling with my wife. I'm going to kill you. Oh, my gosh. And at that point, I I was thinking, I'm going to wind up in the woods outside of Radislava. He then said, only kidding, only kidding. Let's I said, no, I'm really very tired. Could you take like me? I gotta go. <laughs> so he took me back to the hotel. So I survived that experience. You but can't make it up. I, I but you know, many of these stories are in my book because I've been really collecting them for many years. And my wife said she's tired of hearing them at cocktail parties. <laughs> I need to write them in a book and put put it out so I never have to repeat the stories again. <laughs> What was the process of writing this book? How did you, so you have all these memories, all of these ideas. How did you get a, you know, I, you know, so many people I speak to are like, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to write this book, but it it can feel really overwhelming. How did you get started? What was your process? It was with, during COVID, I completed my tenure with Lancaster Symphony. And so I'm at home and I love to read. I read all the time, ongoing constantly. So I thought, you know, maybe I should put some of these things down on paper. And then I started putting together vignettes, little stories of my travels, particularly in Eastern Europe, because I had so many travels from 1980 to 1990 in Eastern Europe. This is not a book for musicians. This is a book for people that are just interested in having fun and enjoying an odd, unusual life, which I've been fortunate enough to lead. And so I kept thinking, great, I'm going to put this down. I'm going to write it down. 
And then I'd go upstairs and my wife would say, what are you doing upstairs? I said, well, I'm working for the music festival. Oh, okay. And then I started working on the computer, much as I hate the computer, putting the stories together and then starting to put the stories into some kind of a sequence so that people could read them and say, how interesting. This has nothing to do with music. This has to do with travels and some of the places where Stephen has been. I mean, I'll give you another very quick anecdote. Please. When I first showed up at the, the Slovak uh, city of Bratislava, I went to the best restaurant in, in Bratislava. This is 1980. And at the time, it's right on the Danube River. So I ordered fish. The fish comes and it stinks. Oh, and I, no. said, I said to the waiter, this, this fish stinks. His response to me was, have you looked in the Danube recently? Yeah, so... And they just didn't care. So there are all these stories. I, I showed up once. The producer invited me to his home in, in Bratislava, in his car. We get to a parking space outside his home, his apartment. And he starts taking the windshield wipers off. And I said, Ivan, what are you doing? He said, you don't understand. In Bratislava, there are... 60,000 cars, but only 40,000 windshield wipers. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so, wow. Fine. That's said and done. He takes the two windshield wipers off, and he also chains the hood because of battery theft. Oh the, next time, the next time he brings me to his house, he feels bad that he's put me in a spot to think less of him and his neighborhood. So he goes to take the windshield wiper off the driver's side. And I get out to try to help him by taking the windshield wiper off the right side of the car. He says, oh, you don't have to do that. This is a good neighborhood. And it's the mentality yeah. people live with day in and yeah. day out. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> I'm speechless. Yeah. You shouldn't be. You of all <laughs> That's incredible. I'm, I mean, I just, you know, you you have so many interesting stories. I do think that this book is for musicians and anyone okay. who's interested in travel, I would I would fairly say. And I'm wondering, as so you mentioned that you, you started with vignettes. In terms of the narrative structure, how did it turn into the format that it did? Did you find that it mirrored writing a symphony? How did it, you know, how did it come together? It came together in that the first section of it is about me growing up with my sister and our wonderfully blessed childhood. We had wonderful parents, and I'm very grateful for all of the upbringing that we had. And then the second section is uh, about the Lancaster and, De and Delaware symphonies, and also the fact that I was not I was in a in a crease in the system in that I was overqualified for American smaller orchestras and underqualified for major orchestras because I had spent my most of my time in Europe. So as a result, I had to make my own way. And making my own way included me becoming an assistant professor, from there becoming head of the music department at Packer Institute. And from there, going on to the Wilmington Music School, where I had to use 
any of my business acumen to help the school and write the school. It was the eighth largest community music school in the United States. Wow. I was I was really very fortunate to be the right place at the right time. And then from there, the Delaware Symphony was going broke. And so they hired me by the concert. And the Lancaster Symphony was a commute distance. So they hired me for the season. So it was, and then Delaware grew because of great board participation. Mm -hmm. Delaware grew to be a, a $5 million budget orchestra with 120 services when I left them. Uh, 100 services is either a rehearsal or a concert. Uh, And Lancaster, um, I think something like 50 services. And Delaware also had a uh, $3 million endowment when I left them. So I left them in good shape, in great Mm -hmm. health. And Lancaster also, when I just left Lancaster after COVID, it was in really good shape. And I now have this music festival up in Corning, New York and Mansfield, PA, it started off with seven concerts uh, in eight days. It's now 18 concerts in 16 days with a budget well over $300,000. And it's in this, it started off in this little town of Wellsboro, which has an inhabita- inha- inhabits about maybe 3,000 people. Wow. And yet we've been able to build this wonderful festival. And the first year was Mozart meets the tango. I love that. I'm going to link all of this information in the show notes so that we can definitely promote it because this sounds phenomenal. I'm going to have to make my way as well. And this festival has grown. We have a 65-piece orchestra what? that does classical programs in these 16 weeks and two pops programs. Oh, and wow. uh, it has been a wonderful, wonderful trip going through these 18 years. And we've seen lots of really interesting programs and lots of really wonderful people. We have about 10 members of the Indianapolis Symphony that now take time off from Indianapolis to come to to play at our festival. Brilliant. So will you regale us with a favorite passage or a, a line or two from Travels with Stephen? Which oh, you... I think I've already given that to you with some come of on. the stories. I've told you some of the stories already. Oh, all right, all right. Tried to tease a little bit more out of you, but I'd love to. I'd love yeah, to. Well, what's really nice, Joanna, what, and I, pardon me for interrupting, at the back of the book is yeah. also something very important. It's called Memories. And in the memories, there are pictures of Shelley and me with Ray Charles, with Willie Nelson, wow. uh, with Van Cliburn, with Rostropovich. So it, they're wonderful photographs uh, that oh. I've collected over the years as memories at the back of the book. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Thank and we so have much. in the book itself, we have photographs of Wagner's granddaughter. We also have photographs of the president of the Society of African American Composers conducting the piece that he wrote based on poetry of life in Brooklyn for the Brooklyn Center Chamber Orchestra. Oh, how beautiful. I cannot wait to read this whole book. I'm so honored that you that you met with us and that you shared all of these stories. Is there anything else you'd like the audience to know? 
No, just they can go to my website, stephengunsenhauser.com, or they can go to endlessmountain.net. But stephengunsenhauser.com is probably the fastest way to get and get some information. And the Endless Mountain will tell them all about the music festival in the summer. And it's it's really just a pleasure talking to you. And and you. you brought up some pointed questions, and I'm thrilled to be able to be a part of your show. Oh, I'm smiling so deep. So thank you so much. It's really an honor. My face hurts from smiling, but it was such a joy. <laughs> it's my pleasure, Yolanda. Thanks so much for listening to the Literacy Landscapes podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks so much to my son, Max, and his amazing teacher, James, for the theme song you're listening to today. Be well. Bye. Bye.